The Abbey Grange by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, dramatised by Grant Eustace, with Roy Marsden as Sherlock Holmes and John Moffat as Dr Watson. It was on a bitterly cold and frosty morning during the winter of 1897 that I was wakened by a tugging at my shoulder. Come, Watson, come. What? The game is afoot. What? Well, not a word, just into your clothes quickly. Oh, oh yes, very well. Ten minutes later, we were in a cab and rattling through the silent streets on our way to Charing Cross Station. Holmes nestled in silence into his heavy coat, and I was glad to do the same, for the air was most bitter. Only after we had consumed some tea at the station and taken our places on a train for Kent were we sufficiently thawed to discuss the case on which we had so precipitately embarked. I received this earlier this morning. Abbey Grange, Marsham, Kent, 3.30am. My dear Mr. Holmes... I should, be very, I should be very glad of your immediate assistance in what promises to be a most remarkable case. Except for releasing the lady, I will see that everything is kept exactly as I have found it. But I beg you not to lose an instant, as it is difficult to leave Sir Eustace there. Yours faithfully, Yours Stanley Hopkins. Faithfully, Stanley Hopkins. Hopkins has called me in seven times, and on each occasion his summons has been entirely justified. Yes, I, I believe I've documented every one. Yes, uh, so your powers of selection atone for much which I deplore in your narratives. Well, I believe the readers enjoy them. But your fatal habit of looking at everything from the point of view of a story instead of a, a scientific exercise has ruined what might have been an instructive and even classical series of demonstrations. Mm. Well, why do you not write them yourself? I will, my dear Watson, I will. I propose to devote my declining years to a textbook which will focus the whole art of detection into one volume. Mm. However, let us focus for a moment on just this present case. Mm. This note suggests murder. Yes. There has been violence, and the body left for our inspection. Mm. A mere suicide would not have caused Hopkins to send for me. So, a crime, and committed before twelve last night. What? How can you possibly tell that? By inspection of the trains and by reckoning the time. The local police had to be called, they had to communicate with Scotland Yard, Hopkins had to go out, and he, in turn, had to send for me. All that makes a fair night's work. Ah, here we are. From Chislehurst Station, it was a drive of a couple of miles to a park gate which opened onto an avenue through a noble park. At the end of it was a low, widespread house where Inspector Stanley Hopkins met us at the doorway. I'm very glad you've come, Mr. Holmes, and you too, Doctor. Oh, good morning. Good morning. But I should not have troubled you, for since the lady has come to herself, she has given so clear an account of the affair that there is not much left for us to do. You remember that Lewisham gang of burglars? The Randalls? Exactly. Father and two sons. It's their work. I have not a doubt of it. They were seen and described in Sydenham a fortnight ago. Yes. It's rather cool to do another so soon and so near. But it is they, beyond all doubt. And this time it's a hanging matter. Oh, then this Sir Eustace is dead. Sir Eustace Brackenstall. Yes, he's dead. How? Ah. His head knocked in with his own poker. Good 
Lady Brackenstall is in the morning room. Poor lady, she has had a most dreadful experience. Mm. I think you had best see her and hear her account of the facts first. Lady Brackenstall was no ordinary person. Seldom have I seen so graceful a figure, so womanly a presence, and so beautiful a face. But now she was drawn and haggard, and her sufferings were physical as well as mental. For over one eye rose a hideous plum-coloured swelling, which her maid was bathing assiduously. That will do, Teresa. Thank you. Very well, madam. I have told you all that happened, Mr. Hopkins. Could you not repeat it for me? I would rather Mr. Holmes heard your ladyship's story direct. Madam, have these gentlemen been in the dining room yet? We came in here first. I shall be glad when you can arrange matters. It is horrible to think of him still lying there. Yes. She shuddered and buried her face for a moment in her hands. As she did so, the loose gown fell back from her forearm. You have other injuries, madam. What are these red marks? It is nothing. Oh. It has no connection with the hideous business of last night. If you and your friend will sit down, I, I will tell you all I can. Mr. Holmes, Doctor. Thank you. I have been married to Sir Eustace Brackenstall for about a year. It is of no use my attempting to conceal that our marriage has not been a happy one. Uh, we have already seen some evidence of that. Perhaps the fault may be partly mine. I was brought up in the freer, less conventional atmosphere of South Australia. This English life, with its proprieties and its primness, is not congenial to me. But that is not the main reason. No. It lies in a fact which is notorious to everyone, that Sir Eustace was a confirmed drunkard. Uh -huh. To be with such a man for an hour is unpleasant. Can you imagine what it means to be tied to him day and night? It is a villainy to say that such a marriage is binding. You had been going to tell us of last night. I'm sorry. Sir Eustace retired about half past ten. The servants had already gone to their quarters. Which are where? In the modern wing. We sleep in this central block. And your maid? I have a room above her ladyship's. Ah, thank you. Please go on, madam. I sat up until after eleven with a book. Where? In this room. Then I walked round to see that all was right before I went upstairs. Was that your usual custom? Yes. As I have explained, Sir Eustace was not always to be trusted. Lady Brackenstall paused, as if the events of the night were still too painful to recall. Then she related how she had been confronted in the dining room by an elderly man stepping in through an open French window. Behind him were two others. I stepped back, but the first fellow was on me in an instant. I opened my mouth to scream, but he struck me a savage blow. I must have lost consciousness for several minutes, for when I came to myself, they had secured me tightly to a chair. That's right. By what means? They had torn down the bell rope, and a handkerchief round my mouth prevented me from uttering any sound. Ah. Go on. At this instant, my husband entered the room. He had evidently heard some suspicious sound, for he came prepared with a cudgel in his hand. But when he rushed, one of the burglars, the elderly man, picked up the poker from the grate and struck him a, a terrible blow. 
I fainted once more. Please. When I opened my eyes again, they had collected the silver and drawn a bottle of wine. Each of them had a glass in his hand. Cool indeed. Mm. Then they came over to make sure I was still securely bound, and finally they withdrew, closing the window after them. How was the alarm raised? After a quarter of an hour, I got my mouth free. My screams brought Teresa to my assistance. Yes, that's right. Any other questions, Mr. Holmes? No, I will not impose any further tax upon Lady Brackenstall's patience and time. But before we go into the dining room, I should be glad to hear your maid's experience. I saw the men before ever they came into the house. Where? Down by the lodge gate, yonder. I saw them as I sat by my bedroom window, but I thought nothing of it at the time. How long after that did you hear your mistress scream? About an hour. So down I ran to find her, poor lamb, just as she says. And now you've questioned her long enough, you gentlemen. And now she's coming to her room to get that rest she badly needs. Thank you, Teresa. She has been with her all her life. Nursed her as a baby and came with her to England when they first left Australia 18 months ago. The kind of maid you don't find nowadays. Right. This way, Mr. Holmes, if you please. Thank you. The keen interest had passed out of Holmes's expression, and I knew that with the mystery, all the charm of the case had departed. Yet the scene that awaited us in the dining room of the Abbey Grange was sufficiently strange to arrest his attention. A glance took in the details of the rest of the room before our thoughts were entirely absorbed by the horribly injured body which lay spread upon the tiger-skin hearthrug in front of the fire. Oh, dear, dear, dear. Bare feet and trousers thrown on over his nightshirt. He had evidently been in his bed when the alarm broke out. So it would seem. Uh, This is the cudgel Lady Brackenstall mentioned? Yes, and the poker is over here. Good Lord. Bent into a curve by the force of the blow. He must be a powerful man, this elder Randall. Yes, I have some record of him, and he is a rough customer. But we'll get him, and all of them. We have the news at every seaport already, and a reward will be offered tonight. What beats me is how they could have done so mad a thing, knowing that the lady would describe them, and that we could not fail to recognise the description. Exactly. One would have expected that they would silence Lady Brackenstall as well. Well, They may not have realised that she had recovered from her faint. That's likely enough. Hmm. If she seemed to be senseless, they would not take her life. Yes. Hopkins... What about this poor fellow? A good-hearted man when he was sober, but a perfect fiend when he was drunk. From what I hear, he very nearly came our way once or twice. On the whole, and uh, between ourselves, it will be a brighter house without him. As Hopkins was speaking, Holmes moved over to examine with great attention the knots upon the red cord with which the lady had been secured. Then he carefully scrutinised the broken and frayed end. When this was pulled down, the bell must have rung loudly. Uh, No one could hear it. Uh, It rings in the kitchen right at the back of the house. 
How did the burglar know that no one could hear it? How dare he pull at a bell rope in that reckless fashion? Mr Holmes, you put the very question I have asked myself again and again. There can be no doubt that this fellow must have known the house and its habits. He must have been in league with one of the servants. But all eight of them are of good character. Well, the point is a minor one. And when you have Randall, you will probably find no difficulty in securing his accomplice. Yes. The lady's story certainly seems to be corroborated, if it needed corroboration, by every detail which we see before us. Well, what did they take? Not much. Only half a dozen articles of plate off the sideboard. Lady Brackenstall thinks they were themselves so disturbed by the death of Sir Eustace that they did not ransack the house as they would otherwise have done. And yet they drank some wine. To steady their nerves. Exactly. These three glasses on the sideboard, have you touched them? No, Mr Holmes. And the bottle stands as they left it. Hello. Now what is this? Holmes had lost his listless expression, and again I saw an alert light of interest in his eyes. The bottle standing beside the glasses showed that it was no common vintage which the murderers had enjoyed. Holmes raised the cork and examined it. This bottle was not opened by a corkscrew, but a pocket screw, probably contained in a knife, and not more than an inch and a half long. What? When you catch this fellow, you will find that he has one of these multiplex knives in his possession. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, but these glasses do puzzle me, I confess. Lady Brackenstall actually saw the three men drinking, did she not? Yes, she was clear about that. Oh, then there is an end of it. It must be a mere chance about the glasses. Well, good morning, Hopkins. I don't see that I can be of any use to you. During our return journey, I could see by Holmes's face that he was much puzzled by something which he had observed. At last, by a sudden impulse, just as our train was crawling out of a suburban station, he sprang onto the platform and pulled me out after him. Excuse me, my dear fellow, but on my life I simply can't leave that case in this condition. Every instinct that I possess cries out against it. Yes, but... But the lady's story was complete. I mean, the maid's corroboration was sufficient. What have you to put against that? Three wine glasses, that is all. Sit down on this bench, Watson. Uh, yes. Until a train for Chislehurst arrives. And allow me to lay the evidence before you, imploring you in the first instance to dismiss from your mind the idea that anything which the maid or mistress said must necessarily be true. Holmes proceeded to list all the details that had excited his suspicion. Some account of the burglars and their appearance had been in the papers and would naturally occur to anyone who wished to invent a story. Burglars are, in any case, only too glad as a rule to enjoy the proceeds of one undertaking before embarking on another only two weeks later. It was an unusually early hour for burglars, it was unusual for them to commit murder when they had the numbers to overpower one man. It was unusual for them to be content with a limited plunder. And finally, it was unusual for such men to leave a bottle half full. How do all these unusuals strike you? Well, their cumulative effect is certainly considerable. 
And yet each of them is quite possible in itself. But at any rate, I have shown that there is a certain element of improbability about the lady's story. Yes, you have. And then there are the wine glasses. Can you see them in your mind's eye? Yes, I see them clearly. We are told three men drank from them. Does that strike you as likely? There was wine in each glass. And there was beeswing only in one glass. Hmm. The last glass filled would be most likely to contain beeswing. The bottle was full of it. It is inconceivable that two glasses were clear and the third heavily charged. There are only two possible explanations. If, after the second glass was filled, the bottle was violently agitated, then the third glass would receive the beeswing. Correct. But that does not appear probable. Well, what then do you suppose? That only two glasses were used, and the dregs of both were poured into a third glass, so as to give the false impression that three people had been there. But that can only mean that Lady Brackenstall and her maid have deliberately lied to us. Yes. So they must have some very strong reason for covering the real criminal. And we must construct our case without any help from them. Good. We have not had to wait long for a train. Oh, the household of the Abbey Grange was much surprised at our return. Holmes, finding that Stanley Hopkins had gone off to report to headquarters, took possession of the dining room, locked the door upon the inside, and devoted himself for two hours to one of those minute and laborious investigations which formed the solid basis on which his brilliant edifices of deduction were built. The window, the curtains, the carpet... The chair, the rope, each in turn, was minutely examined and duly pondered. Then, to my astonishment, he climbed up on the massive mantelpiece, above which hung the few remaining inches of the bell rope. It's all right, Watson. We have got our case. One of the most remarkable in the collection. But dear me, how slow-witted I have been. But you have got your... Men? Man, Watson. Only one, but a very formidable person witnessed the blow that bent the poker. Six foot three, active as a squirrel, dexterous with his fingers and remarkably quick-witted. For this whole ingenious story is of his concoction. And yet in that bell rope he has given a clue which should not have left us a doubt. Where was the clue? If you were to pull down a bell rope, where would you expect it to break? Well, normally where it's attached to the wire. But this one is frayed. Exactly. The end we can examine is frayed. He was cunning enough to do that with his knife. But the other end is not frayed? Cut clean off. But you can only observe that on the mantelpiece. Hmm. I could not reach the point it had been cut by at least three inches, from which I infer that he is that much taller than I am. Oh, anything else? The mark on the seat of the oaken chair. Yeah, it could be blood. Undoubtedly it is blood. This alone puts the lady's story out of court. If she was seated on the chair when the crime was done, how comes the mark? But then she was placed on the chair after the death of her husband. Precisely. Now I should like a few words with the maid, Teresa. She was stern and ungracious, this taciturn Australian nurse. 
and it took some time before Holmes's pleasant manner overcame her suspicious nature. But then she did not attempt to conceal her hatred for her late employer and the cruel manner in which he had treated her mistress. Of course he was all honey when first we met him. Only 18 months ago, we both feel as if it were 18 years. She'd only just arrived in London. Her first voyage, she'd never been from home before. He won her with his title and his money and his false London ways. If she made a mistake, she's paid for it if ever a woman did. Is Lady Brackenstall down in the morning room again? Yes. But you mustn't ask too much of her, for she's gone through all that flesh and blood will stand. The lady was reclining on the same couch, but looked brighter than before. I hope you have not come to cross-examine me again. No. My whole desire is to make things easy for you, for I am convinced that you are a much-tried woman. If you will treat me as a friend and trust me, you may find that I will justify your trust. What do you want me to do? To tell me the truth. Oh, Mr. Holmes! No, 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 Lady Brackenstall, it is no use. You may have heard of any little reputation I possess. Little? Oh. I will stake it all on the fact that your story is an absolute fabrication. You are an impudent fellow! Have you nothing to tell me? I have told you all I know. I am sorry. Without another word, we left the room and the house. There was a pond in the park, and to this, my friend led the way. Oh. Frozen over. But with a hole left? Yes. Before the convenience of that swan, I thought. I'll leave a note for Hopkins at the lodge. It may be a hit or it may be a miss but we are bound to do something to justify this second visit. I think our next scene of operations must be the office of the Adelaide-Southampton shipping line, hmm? which, if I remember right, stands at the end of Palmal. Once we reached the office of the shipping line, Holmes's card sent into the manager ensured instant attention, and he was not long in acquiring all the information which he needed. He found the voyage on which Mary Fraser, as Lady Brackenstall then was, had travelled to England, and learned that all the officers on that voyage were again at sea, all bar one. Jack Croker, who according to the manager had not an equal in the fleet for loyalty and honesty, had recently been promoted from first officer to captain. In two days' time, he was sailing from Southampton in command of a ship. We then drove to Scotland Yard, but instead of entering, Holmes sat in the cab, lost in profound thought. No. No, I can't. Cabby! Drive to Charing Cross! At the telephone office there, Holmes sent off a message. Finally, he directed the driver to Baker Street. I couldn't do it, Watson. What? Once that warrant was made out, nothing on earth would save him. I had rather play tricks with the law of England than with my own conscience. Before evening, we had a visit from Inspector Stanley Hopkins. I believe you are a wizard, Mr. Holmes. How on earth could you know that stolen silver was at the bottom of the pond? I didn't, Doug. 
But you told me to examine it. I was merely going on the idea that, as they came out through the French windows, there was the pond with one tempting little hole in the ice right in front of their noses. Could there be a better hiding place? Well, I'm grateful to you for that, Mr Holmes. But I have had a bad setback. The Randall gang were arrested in New York this morning. Oh, dear me. Now, that is certainly rather against your theory that they committed a murder in Kent last night. It is fatal, Mr Holmes. Absolutely fatal. Still, there are other gangs of three beside the Randalls. Or it may be some new gang of which the police have never heard. Quite so. It is perfectly possible. Eh, what? Uh, you are? Uh, no rest for me until I have got to the bottom of this business. Dinner was over and the table cleared before Holmes alluded to the matter again. Suddenly he looked at his watch. I expect developments, Watson. When? Mm, within a few minutes. It was, in fact, only seconds later that our door was opened to admit a very tall, sunburned young man with a springy step, despite his huge frame. Come in, Captain Croker. You got my telegram? I got it, and I came at the hour you said. Let's hear the worst. Speak out, man. Don't sit there and play with me like a cat with a mouse. Have a cigar, Captain, and don't let your nerves run away with you. <clears throat> now... Be frank with me, and we may do some good. Play tricks with me, and I'll cross you. What do you want me to do? Give me a true account of all that happened at the Abbey Grange last night. A true account, mind you, with nothing added and nothing taken off. I'll chance it. I believe you're a man of your word. The story that unfolded was clearly much as Holmes expected, although most of it was entirely new to me. Croker had been first officer of the ship in which Mary Fraser sailed to England and had fallen in love with her, although there had been only friendship on her side. When we parted, she was a free woman, but I could never again be a free man. But when I heard about her marriage, I didn't grieve. I just rejoiced that good luck had come her way and that she'd not thrown herself away on a penniless sailor. That's how I loved Mary Fraser. Did you see her again? No, not for a year or more. But then I was between ships, staying with my folks in Sydenham, and I met Teresa, her maid. And she told you about the husband? Yes. It made my blood run cold. I determined to see Mary herself, especially when I had notice I was to sail in a few days. I learned from Teresa the ways of the house and went round there. At first... Mary wouldn't let me in, but eventually she did. And I heard from her own lips things which made my blood boil. And her husband discovered you? Yes. He rushed like a madman into the room, called her the vilest names that a man could use to a woman, and welted her across the face with his stick. Then he turned on me. And you responded with the poker? By then it was his life or mine. But where did the wine come into it? Well, that was Teresa's idea. Mary's scream had brought her down. I had opened a bottle to get a little between Mary's lips, for she was half dead with a shock, and I took a drop myself. Teresa said with three glasses we could make it appear that burglars had done it. I cut down the bell rope and tied Mary up. With knots that only a sailor could have made. Yes. 
And you gathered up some silver to make it look like robbery? Yes. Although I dropped that in the pond. I know. Just as I know all the rest is true. <laughs> I thought the police never could have seen through our dodge. The police haven't. Hmm. Now, Captain, self-defense may not be enough to save you. But I have so much sympathy for you that if you choose to disappear in the next 24 hours, no one will hinder you. And then it will all come out? Certainly. What sort of proposal is that? I know enough of law to understand that Mary would be had as an accomplice. No, sir. Let them do their worst upon me, but find some way of keeping my poor Mary out of the courts. I was only testing you, Captain. And you ring true every time. <laughs> well, it is great responsibility I take upon myself. But if Hopkins cannot take a hint, I can do no more. But we'll do this in due form of law. You are the prisoner. Watson, you are a British jury. And I never met a man who was more eminently fitted to represent one. I... I am the judge. Now, gentlemen of the jury, you have heard the evidence. Do you find the prisoner guilty or not guilty? Not guilty, my lord. You're acquitted, Captain Croker. <laughs> so long as the law does not find some other victim, you are safe from me. Come back to this lady in a year, and may her future and yours justify us in the judgment we have pronounced this night. In the Abbey Branch by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Roy Marsden played Sherlock Holmes, John Moffat, Dr. Watson, Sean Barrett, Inspector Stanley Hopkins, Rosalind Ayres, Lady Brackenstall, Maddie Head, Teresa, and Tony McEwan, Captain Croker. The music was written by Joss Sanglier and played by Joss Sanglier and Elizabeth Fellows. The Abbey Grange was dramatised by Grant Eustace and directed by Michael Bartlett for Daedalus Productions.